All right. Well, when I was reflecting on preparing for the class today, I realized it has been a month since I've stood in front of you. And when that happens, there's a couple things that go on. One is we forget where we were when we last talked. Uh, and also, when you're dealing with a, pa a book like Romans, the momentum of the theological argument can dissipate if you're not constantly keeping it to the front of your mind. <clears throat> so we should probably review briefly. Romans chapters 1 through 3 has Paul writing to prove that all are sinners separated from God under God's wrath headed for eternal separation from God after death. Why? Because we're sinners. And God, who is just, must judge sin. <clears throat> we have no righteousness within ourselves, and we need forgiveness so that we can receive right standing before God. <clears throat> but nothing we can do allows us to earn our way to that forgiveness or righteousness. That's Romans chapters 1 through 3, in a nutshell. Romans 3.21 through 5.21, which is where we ended four weeks ago, Paul showed us that God has provided a way for us to be forgiven, reconciled, and declared righteous. And that is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a propitiation for our sin. Therefore, we can be acceptable to God. <clears throat> Thus, the first five chapters of Romans are all about justification. That's really kind of this long, involved argument or presentation of theology as found in Scripture, going back to Adam and Abraham, He's speaking to Jews and Greeks and makes a very strong case, a biblical case, that this is where we are at. Starting in verse 6, I'm sorry, chapter 6, and through chapter 8, Paul begins to explore the what now? If we understand justification, what now? If we are declared righteous before God, okay, and you can almost hear somebody in the crowd saying, so what? You know, good for you, what do, how, do, how do I live? So there are those who try to mischaracterize the chapters 6 through 8 as the ethics of Paul, and there would be an argument that could be made to that, but there's more, a larger picture, and that is a word called sanctification. Page two on your handout is a chart, which is an attempt to distinguish between justification and sanctification. We're gonna be exploring that right-hand column for a number of weeks as we work our way through uh, chapter six, seven, and eight. But for right now, this is a really good starting point. So let's just look at it and look at the difference. 
Do you understand? We, we tend to blur these lines in our vocabulary and in our understanding. And we have tried from the beginning in our study of Romans to define the theological terms. That means somebody's here. <laughs> They're online, hello. Um, <clears throat> I'm just glad it's a doorbell and it's not some weird sound, you know, like Star Wars theme or something. <laughs> Justification is a declaration. It declares someone is righteous. Sanctification is the means to become righteous. And you want to say, but if you're already declared, how can you become? Ah, well, we'll be looking at that. Justification is once for all. The death of Christ. Make that declaration. But sanctification is a continuous work. Now, I'm not going to get into this at all in our uh, discussions, but I just want to refer to it. There are multiple interpretations of what is sanctification in the church. I even have a book called Four Views of Sanctification, which is lovely because they're all right. All four views. You've got the Wesleyan view, you have the Keswick view, you have the Reformed view, you have the Dispensational view. They all make a very, very uh, powerful case that their, their interpretation of this concept is correct. I mean, I've got charts, I've got graphs, and I just kind of went, wow. Um, the bottom line is we are moving towards heaven every day every each hour that we live we get that much closer to that eternity and sanctification you have to think about it this way we were saved we are being saved and we will be saved we were saved by the act of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross we are being saved in our daily walk and we will be saved in the future at the point of death and meeting God in eternity. So, justification causes salvation. Sanctification is the result of salvation. Justification deals with a Christian standing before God. Sanctification deals with a Christian's experience in life. Justification, objective. Sanctification, subjective. Justification removes the guilt and the penalty of sin. Sanctification removes the growth and power of sin. We'll talk a little bit more about that today. Justification changes a person's position. And then right below that, justification again changes a person's position before God. Both same statement. But look at sanctification. It changes a person's nature and character, but also changes a person's disposition in relationship to God. Justification deals with the imputation of righteousness. Sanctification de deals with the impartation of righteousness. Justification is for the sinner. Sanctification for the saint. You can look at that in much more detail on your own.
but it's a good chart to have in your file if you're ever trying to uh, grasp all of this. As we typically like to do, uh, I think it's a good idea that we read together the passage we have before us on page one, which is Romans chapter six and the first 14 verses. So let's read it together, just so you have the words rolling around in your head in a fresh manner. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. <clears throat> for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. <coughs> okay, we start with verse 1. What shall we think? say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, if we don't remember what we would, had read or studied a month ago, this seems like an odd question. So if you happen to have your Bibles open, you would need to look at chapter 5 of Romans, verse 20, which says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Chapter 6. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, that's a mouthful phraseology to say, if we're saved, and I even wrote it down here, hey, I'm saved once for all. That means I can do whatever I want with impunity. All my sins have been covered. Hey, I can go murder somebody, and I'm still going to go to heaven because Jesus died for my sins. 
And you know what? If I do bad things, I can show how gracious God is in his forgiveness. That's logical, right? You'd think. Now that is a term that has been classified as antinomian. Antinomian, anti-law. We sin so that we can show God's forgiveness. <clears throat> Another term has been uh, uh, applied to this in an even broader sense is libertine. Not libertarian. Libertine. <clears throat> make sure you don't make that mistake. Libertine means there's no restraints at all. Absolutely none. Very similar, almost a uh, synonym of antinomian. Antinomianism, the idea that we can sin with impunity, we can sin to show the grace of God, had to have been in the church. Otherwise, why would Paul have written about it? Somebody is coming in there and saying, oh, cool, this is great. We don't live under the law anymore because I believe what you're saying, that Jesus has come to wipe out the necessity of the, of the law because his sacrifice took care of it all. Jude, verse 4, hints about this. Verse 4 reads, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So the, obviously there have been those who had snuck in with this idea that we can do whatever we want. And you might say, wow, that was terrible back then. It doesn't exist today. <laughs> this is from a fellow who very recently posted it in his email newsletter to 176,000 subscribers to his church group. Um, I expounded on the subject in one of our editorial board meetings last week and I could tell my colleagues were thinking, oh poor fellow, he's finally slipped over the edge. But after I was able to explain myself, <clears throat> my companions good-humoredly admitted maybe I had something, which was just enough encouragement, encouragement for me to lay out the great theory of relative sin before our subscribers this morning. If the idea catches on, I might even form a group to promote my theory. We could call it the immoral minority instead of the moral majority. The immoral minority. It would be devoted to the popularization, the enhancement, and the steadfast defense of sin. Just good old homegrown American sin. It is only when one sins that one knows, how, knows the forgiveness of the Lord. Unless one is forgiven, one cannot forgive. Where would the world be if this were not the case? It's not a minority. 
Exactly. It's this, it's so subtle to the point of, well, I even wrote it down here. It exists everywhere you turn in, and I, I, I'm going to sound really judgmental here, but there are times where we need to make judgments. And you look at po folks who call themselves Christians, but they do not act in a holy manner. So this guy is serious. Oh, he's dead serious. This dead, dead serious. His name is George Naval. Never heard of him before, gratefully. Um, but yeah, let's hope not. But you have this cultural Christianity, an American form of Christianity that is so pervasive, we grow up with it, it's around, our friends are that way. Oh, I go to church. In fact, if you poll me, I will say I'm a Christian. And you hear all these incredible polls of the number of Christians. Well, that's starting to change because people are finally starting to be honest, going, I don't even know how to define that anymore. Um, it's a tip of the hat when they're polled and we can say a lot of these are very good people. Yeah. I have a husband deceased now of a dear friend of mine um, in the Catholic Church and he you know, gambled, he womanized, he did everything. Well, he said, well, I'll just go to confession on Saturday night. And then the next week he did the same thing and he'd go to confession yeah. on Saturday night. Yeah. And you, you get caught in this idea of what that is. Now, this is where we start looking at this. We have to be, again, we have to be careful. Because, you know, they, they say the old adage, if you point a finger, mm -hmm. you've got three of them pointing at you. And one of them pointing the other direction. So we have to make sure that we call it out in its appropriateness. And yet, if we're not calling it out, who is? You and I have talked about some folks that you have run into in your circle, that there's this seeming freedom that they can do whatever they want and still under the guise of Christianity, and you're kind of going, that's immoral behavior. Of course, then they would say, by whose definition? Who defines what's immoral? Well, now we start running into all sorts of messes. If you eliminate this little guy called the Bible, everything changes. So we have this, this, this challenge, even here in this verse, defining what the word sin is. Right. We define sin as what? How have we defined it even in our group? Uh, see, Philip leaves and Doug... Yeah. Philip comes in, Doug leaves. We were going to say, we were talking to it's not personal. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. Uh, and like we said, now that we're on tape, we will now, make, we'll now roast Doug because he's not in the room. No, I'm kidding. Um, you try to define the word sin in this verse. Are we to continue in sin? Well, what does that mean? Because believe it or not, there's two definitions for this word here. There's two schools of thought. One is this is talking about the act of sin. The idea that I walk over and punch you in the face just because I can. And I have, I have assaulted you. 
versus the idea that the word sin here means the sin nature. Just the proclivity of having sin. And the reason why that interpretation has merit is because the entire chapter 5 was talking about through Adam, sin is now part of our nature. And so it would make sense that in this case, he's carrying that argument forward and saying it's not just the act of sin, but the simple fact that you have its propensity. It hasn't gone away. The, uh, the ability to sin has not gone away. It's part of who you are. Yes, Christ died for your sins, but you still have a sinful nature. Your nature has not gone away. You also have to define continue. What does it mean to continue in sin? That means you were doing something before and you're continuing to do it now? Literally, the Greek words here mean means to remain upon the sin. To remain upon it. To abide with it. To fellowship with it. To have cordial relationships to it. So are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, we have another word that we have to define. I like having this conversation. So how do we define grace? What is grace? I, I, I just probably 25, 30 years ago, teaching a, a, an adult Sunday school class. It was about 40, 50 of them in the room. And I said, so let's go around the room and define the word grace. And half the room couldn't. They'd never really thought about it before. And I'm not going to put you on the spot. Don't worry. But if someone were to ask you, when you say, I live by the grace of God, what do you mean by that? Now, the simplest way is the very old acronym God's riches at Christ's expense G R A C E God's riches at Christ's expense If you remember that you will have a definition of grace for the rest of your life Because that technically is what it is The grace of God is his kingdom at the expense of Christ's death that gift so here, you know, granted I'm a little far afield theologically here uh, beyond what the verse was about. The verse was more about antinomianism than anything else. But it's such a, a powerful place to start. If we don't have a definition of sin, we don't have a definition of grace, we don't have a definition of the continuation of the sin nature, the rest of this chapter won't make any sense. You won't know what's being talked about. And think of Paul's answer in verse 2. Are we to, you know, just go out and do whatever we want? By no means. 
That's really a very, uh, even though it has an exclamation point in your text, it's about as close to an expletive as Paul could get. They say here, um, it is the strongest idiom in the New Testament, in New Testament Greek, to indicate indignation and repudiation. He's shouting, God forbid, no, absolutely not. You cannot simply go out and do whatever you want. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's why when we make these observations, you brought up a, your, your friend and you brought up some of the folks you know, it's this, what is going on? How can someone live this way and then claim that they have been redeemed? Because it's so obviously against God's nature and against God's will. I think this partly is a foundation for John MacArthur's attempts many years ago now. He, they gave it a definition called Lordship Salvation, where the idea is you might be saved, but you need to declare Jesus as Lord of your life and everything in what you do. That is a standard by which you can then determine whether or not someone is in the faith. Of course, ultimately, we can't be the ones who determine. I mean, it's God's role. God is the ultimate judge. And what are we going to do? Stand at the door and card people? You know, before they allow it into our congregation? Well, of course not. We are going to welcome anyone into our congregation. And hopefully, that the spirit of the fellowship and the word of God and the worship that they, that they observe and the interaction of the, the congregation itself shows that this is a community that serves Christ as separate from the world, as an alternative. If the church looks like the world, it's just more fun, then it's not the church. That, that is not an alternative to the world. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised by the from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. There's a word here, into, that you need to circle. This idea of being baptized into Christ Jesus, The prepositions in and into are used over 200 times in the New Testament, 164 of them by Paul. That idea of being one with Christ or in Christ, um, I'm not going to remember it exactly, maybe you can help me remember, but didn't Dr. Martin have the thing that we had this? Yeah. Oh, you, you, you studied under him as well at Grand Canyon University, a great Bible teacher. College. College. Sorry, Grand Canyon College. <laughs> yes. Yeah, when they were really a school, now they're a university. Anyway. Uh, 
you know, all 12 of us who held hands to make sure the buildings didn't fall down. <laughs> anyway, um, but he would hold up the thumb and say, we are in Christ, and you cannot remove it. It's, we are one in Christ. And he kept, kept doing that over and over again as a visual. And I see that, and when you read, start reading these phrases, imagine the theological controversy that this verse brings up because it brings up baptism. Oh, great. So now, does it mean you have to be baptized to be a Christian? Is that what this is saying? Of course, there are those who would quote this verse as saying that that's not what it is. Because there's many other verses that seem to indicate that. No, it's not what he's saying. But then you have the controversy, is, is Paul writing about the physical water baptism, or is Paul talking about spirit baptism? Which is it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Exactly. He's probably talking about both, because he's obviously using a metaphor. But he's also talking about a physical act that they were all very familiar with. Here's a little trivia thing for yourself, just to make sure you understand it. The word baptize or baptism in our English Bibles is not a translation. It's a transliteration. It is a Greek word just simply with the words changing from Greek to English, letters. The word itself means to go under the water, baptizo. It uh, means to immerse, to put under the water. There is a, another word, bapto, which means to dip. So. James Montgomery Boyce has one of the most fun descriptions of this that I have ever come across. And this is from a Presbyterian preacher, Presbyterian Reformed preacher, that in their particular church they would baptize infants. Alright, so pedo-baptism. He, this is just, I love this. And you'll understand why, because it made me laugh out loud. <clears throat> The clearest example that shows the meaning of baptizo is the Greek text from the Greek poet and physician Nicander, who lived about 200 BC. It's a recipe for making pickles. <laughs> and it's helpful because he uses both words, bapto and baptizo. Nicander says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should first be bapto or dipped in boiling water. Then, baptizo, immerse in a vinegar solution. Both verbs concern the immersing of a vegetable in a solution, but the first is temporary, and the second, the act of baptizing the vegetable, produces a permanent change. When used in the New Testament, the word more often refers to our union and identification with Christ than to our water baptism itself. Mere intellectual assent is not enough. There must be union with him, a real change, 
just like the vegetable to the pickle. So, are you a pickled Christian? <laughs> I mean, I just, unfortunately, the entrepreneurial mindset I have thinking, ooh, we could create a Christian pickle product. <laughs> anyway, uh, but the picture is actually quite expressive. There is a change that occurs to, uh, and, I, and I've, I've refer, referred this story before, but I was visiting uh, Oklahoma City when our daughter, the youngest daughter, Fiona, was in college there. Happened to be in the area, we decided to go to church. That particular church, um, the pastor, I, I, I don't know how, how how much I've told you the story before, but the pastor's Nazarene church had been talking about the various um, uh, sacraments. I wasn't there. Hmm? You, were, you were on a business trip. I, I was on a business there. trip, right. You weren't with us. I'll never forget that I wasn't yeah. there. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the pastor was talking about the various things, and he had gone to his mom and said, hey, mom, do you have my baptism certificate somewhere? I, I, I can't seem to find it in my papers. And she goes, hmm. Son, I don't know if you were ever baptized. I can't remember. I don't think you were. Here he's the pastor of this mega church, Nazarene church, right next to a Nazarene college, and not where Fiona was going, but next to a, a, a university. And he's, he's, so he's sitting there going, maybe <clears throat> there's something that we as a denomination have not been focusing on. We have not really made an intentionality. And so he had given an entire sermon of how important the, the sacrament of baptism was. And then a video came up, because we were in second service, of him being baptized in the first service. And then he said to the congregation, I'll bet, I mean, there were a lot of people in that room. I'll bet there are a lot of you who have never been baptized. And if we look at scripture, it is a declaration. It doesn't mean that it saves you, but it is a formal declaration of this being baptized into Christ, into his death. And obedience. Hmm? And obedience. And obedience, yes. And he said, so, we've set it up here where we will welcome anybody who comes forward. Half the congregation walk forward. And more and more people are streaming to the front. And Fiona turns to me and says, Daddy, can I be baptized? And I'm like, absolutely. I watched over 150 baptisms that day. And it was person after person after person. They had obviously some sort of massive towel and <laughs> things in the back room trying to blow drying people. I mean, it was an extremely th important thing. You can go on YouTube now, go to that church's YouTube channel, and it's the title, Something Happens in the Water. It's the name of the church. Hmm? What do you mean the name of the church? I don't remember now. Okay. Right offhand. <laughs> And the thing was, it's like, Fiona just interested in Fiona You know, she was somebody who came, was at Canvas when she was four years old, and just a very strong believer, and wrote her own songs, and you know, did all this stuff, but 
never been baptized. And she just had tears coming to her eyes and said, Daddy, I need to do this. It yeah. wasn't can I, it was I need to do this. Yeah. And and it was it was called a miracle Sunday. They because it was so unexpected that there were people who hadn't been able to attend, they were ill or out of town. So they were calling the church offices. So they did it the next Sunday. And, and they had another hundred people the next Sunday. Uh, What's, that's why I said I'll never forget I wasn't there because that was an incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit. One yeah. of those once-in-a-lifetime things to be able to ever be present and part of. Yeah. Because these people coming searching for it, it was genuine. These were oh, genuine believers. I was watching senior citizens and young kids. I mean, all ages. Entire pastor, families yeah, were going on. Pastor baptized his own child. I mean, it's just... I'm relaying this because here we are talking about the concept theologically of being baptized into Christ and that's why the answer is yes. Paul is talking about the, the water baptism and the importance of it. But he's also talking of the spiritual nature of what happens when you become a believer is that the Spirit enters you and you become baptized into Christ. That word into, that's why I focused on it. Because we're being baptized not into his life, but into his death. What an interesting switch. I mean, if this guy was a motivational writer, he blew it right here. He should have said, you are baptized into your best life now. No. You were baptized into his death. We were buried, and if you think of the act of baptism, that idea of going under the water, being buried, pickled, you are immersed in that water. It surrounds you. And in fact, if they hold you under, you will not come up, ever. It is that moment of that act of the symbol of being baptized into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might be might walk in the newness of life. <clears throat> so I had to focus on that last little phrase. It's one of those pastoral phrases that you could write do an entire sermon around that we too might walk in newness of life. What an incredible promise that is. Here we go, going back to Paul. I mean, he gets so heady and theological and, and, and it's just oh, so hard to grasp it all. And then he just kind of stops and goes, so that you might walk in newness of life. To give a bounce in your step, so to speak. And notice you're not being promised a balloon ride or a chauffeured ride in a limo. You're promised to walk. Walking. It can take a long time. And it's step by step. Every single day. What is it in, in Ephesians when Pastor Del Husay was here. Every one of his uh, benedictions was to walk worthy. Because it's a quote right out of Ephesians. To walk every day. Chapter 5, verse 17 of Romans says, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned over through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. The idea of much more and abundance to walk in the newness of life. It's pretty extraordinary. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him, which is taking the word into even further, the underlying Greek word means planted. In fact, one translation out there actually uses uh, for if we have been planted with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, you have to go. I mean, there's just no way around it. You have to go to Galatians 2.20. Put it right in the margin with this verse. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To be united with him, a union of Christ. And I wrote here, the best way to describe this, and it's a weak illustration, but best I could come up with a short period of thinking about it. Imagine standing before God at the final judgment seat. It's the, you know, you, you, have, you have died, you're now standing before God, and Jesus goes, oh, he's with me. Case closed. Next person. He's with me. That's what united with him means. He's with me. I'm with him. We are one, to use that phrase. One in Christ. With Christ in the future, in eternity, it makes our present identification with him all the more richer. If we know, we know without a shadow of a doubt the result of that final judgment will be he's with me verse 6 we know I love it when Paul uses a different word for know than we might normally see there's two Greek words for know There's gnosko, which means to acquire information from experience. And there's ido, which means to know something intuitively. He uses gnosko here. To know something by experience. Not just fiat, just something that shows up in our head. But we know this. We have experienced it. That our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we be no longer enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And now if we've died with Christ, we'll believe that we'll also live with him. John Owen, who uh, I will, I'm going to be reading from in a moment, he has another book, which I didn't bring with me, called The Death of the Death of the Death of Christ. So the death of death in the death of Christ. 
So you have the word death three times in the title, which makes it very confusing to our modern ears. But he's saying that death died when Christ died. He overcame death. And this is hinted at here. It's expounded much further in our inner text. But it says that we have been free, set free from this. We are no longer enslaved to sin. And yet, this is the hard part where we as believers, this is where the, use the cliche, the rubber meets the road. That sin nature that we talked about in verse 1, it's still inside. We're not perfect. And anyone who claims they are, they're fooling themselves. We still sin. We still struggle with the... I mean, otherwise, the, you know, Satan would just leave us alone. But he's constantly tempting us. One, uh, one preacher said it was like, um, you have the lawn of Satan, then you have a street, and then the lawn of God. It's a really weird illustration, but anyway, just go with it. We have been playing in Satan's lawn, and we have now crossed the street, and we're playing in God's lawn. And Satan is constantly standing on the other side going, I've got cupcakes. I've got this. Come on. Come on back. Come on. And you're like, oh, I don't have cupcakes over here. You know, I'm supposed to give them up. You know, there's that, I know it's a terrible metaphor, but it's very visual in that this is exactly what we live with, with the temptations of the world constant being, being thrown at us. And it's almost as if, well, I shouldn't say almost as if. It is the minions, and not the cute little yellow guys. It is the minions of Satan who are his disciples who are creating the visual temptations and the written temptations and the, the assault on our senses. They don't realize that they are servants of Satan. They're just going along doing their own thing, saying, what's wrong with it? Why, why are you turning me down? So John Owen, the great Puritan writer, he wrote a book many, many years ago called The Mortification of Sin in Believers. It's about 100 pages long. It's actually the last third of this particular book that combines two books into one. You can go online, read John Owen's book on the mortification of sin in believers. <clears throat> it's free. You can find it in PDF form. This particular edition is nice because a guy came in and updated some of the Victorian language that makes it a little harder to read. He keys off of Colossians 3.5, which says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Colon, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. John Owen writes, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? 
You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Your position in Christ and the new life that you have in Him does not excuse you from this work. Our Savior tells us how His Father dealt with every branch in Him that bears fruit, every true and living branch. He prunes it that it may bear more fruit, John 15, 2. He prunes it, and not just for a day or two, but as long as it is a branch in this world. Paul described his practice, quote, I discipline my body and keep it under control, 1 Corinthians 9.27. This was his daily business. If this is the work and business of Paul, who is so exalted in grace, enjoyments, privileges, and consolations above the ordinary measure of believers, how can we be exempt from this work and duty while we are in the world? And I'm not going to read you the rest of the chapter, don't worry. But he does say there's six reasons, and I'll just read the six reasons. One, indwelling sin always abides while we are in this world. Always. Two, sin is still acting and laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. Three, if sin is not continually mortified, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, and soul-destroying sins. Four, the Holy Spirit and His new nature are given to us to oppose sin. Five, neglect of this duty makes the inner one, inner person decay instead of renewing. And six, our spiritual growth is our daily duty. That's what Paul is ultimately trying to point out. Theological grounding, then the practicality of it. This has happened so that we can be set free from sin. If we are trying to mortify, to live the holy life, we will not be as readily drawn away. And I think of these people that we run into who just simply tip the hat and say, yeah, I'm a believer. I go to church on Easter and Christmas. Or if there's a wedding. Or if there's a funeral, I'll go to that. Um, If Christ is not central, the rest of it's just good behavior. And good behavior can turn in an instant. You think of how fragile our society. Turn off the power in Phoenix for um, three weeks and see what happens to this city. It would be chaos. I mean, it's just that that's how fragile we are. Our human nature is to destroy each other for self-preservation because we are so centrally focused and Christ has changed that nature at least we're encouraged to recognize that verse 8 now if we have died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him now Let's look carefully here. I'm going to 
I'm going to try to write this on the board, see if it makes sense. In the Greek, well, that one didn't work. Let's try this one. Oh, much better. Okay. In the Greek, there are two Greek words for the English word with. And the reason why I'm talking about it is right there at the end of verse 8. We believe that we will also live with him. Going back to that unity with Christ concept. The first Greek word is the word meta. The second Greek word, I see it two different ways. So I looked it up. Technically, in English, it would be S-U-N with an accent over soon. But I've also seen it rendered as sin. So think of the word with, sin, synonym, or synthesis. What I find interesting, this is what really struck me as I was looking at this. What did Facebook change their name to? Meta. Meta is with, without intimacy. Right now, we are meta in this room. We're together. We are with each other. But we have not stirred a pot and created one creature out of this room. We have not unified or become one with each other. That's sin. So it wouldn't have been more appropriate if, if Facebook had changed their name to sin? <laughs> anyway, um, I find that funny. Uh, but they chose meta, which means together, without intimacy. And that's exactly what Facebook is. It's collect the idea of a collective uh, um, identity, but no reason to really connect with the other individual. So, you don't often see the word, either of these words, by themselves. You might see meta, because this is the more common word, by itself. But inevitably, it becomes a connected word with another one. And in the Greek, the last word in verse 8 is the word suzao. That means to live with. Combine the two together. And just follow me for a second. So when you're reading along, it says, we believe that we will also suzao with him. We will also suzao him. We will live unified, together, not separately, as if we're in the same room just enjoying each other's company and have a cup of coffee, but that we become so integrated with Christ, you can't tell them apart. 
That's what suzao means. That's living so intimately that you become one. It becomes a union. And I'm not saying that's a translation of the word. I'm saying that's the concept behind it. One fellow put it this way. Well, actually, I'm going to ask a different, different way. I'm going to put you on the spot. What are the ingredients for baking your chocolate chip cookies, which are worldwide famous? What are the ingredients? Chocolate chips. Chocolate chips, obviously. Flour, baking soda. Water, and then mix the dry ingredients in, and then more chocolate chips. All right. And then more chocolate chips. <laughs> like two bags. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's about 10 or 12 different ingredients, right? Yeah. Okay. So let's imagine you put a big, large um, wax paper on one of these tables, take all these 12 ingredients in separate little piles. They are meta. They're together. They're all together, very nice. Now, you take a stirring thing and you mix them all together. Then you bake them, out comes chocolate chip cookies. There is no scientist in this world that can pull that cookie apart and put them back into the 12 different pieces. It is forever combined into a new entity. Delicious entity, but a new entity. And I remember in chemistry class in high school, there was one exercise where we had taken, <clears throat> we had some vial, and it was a liquid, I don't even remember what the, the, the things were, and we took a powdered substance and poured it into the liquid and then stirred it, and slowly we saw the granular things swirl around and disappear. Huh, well, that's interesting. And then the teacher says, so now take that carefully and put it over the Bunsen burner. And so we're putting over the Bunsen burner. We saw the liquid begin to boil. It wasn't water, it was a different, and it took longer because it had a higher boiling point. And we're sitting there going, this is so boring. Why can't the spider monkeys come out of the jungle like they normally do to watch us? Because we like watching them. We don't like to be in chemistry class. And we're sitting there, sitting there, sitting there, and slowly but surely, the liquid disappeared, and what was left was the substance that we had poured into it. We were able to subtract the two. First, we had put them together, but we were able to pull one of them out chemically. But this, you can't do it. What does it say in the scriptures? There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And then uh, that incredible promise, neither life nor death, just on and on and on, we could just go on. That's the picture here when it says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him in eternity 
one in Christ. We know, Gnosko again, by experience, that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. I will stop here. We'll pick up uh, verse 11 and go into that. Yes, Carl. Verse 8 has with twice the same word. Suzabo died with Christ, lived with him. The The live with is a compound word. I did not look up died with, but it's probably also a compound word. I'd have to look it up. Okay, because you made a big point about in this end of That particular one at the very end, I did not point, I did not look at the previous. be very simple. We could actually look it up on your phone if we had to. Okay. Seriously, it's uh, there's an incredible Greek interlinear New Testament BibleHub.com that you can look up any verse in the Bible and have the English, the Hebrew, or the Greek underneath it, and then the translations and do word studies. I use it all the time. It's one of my Wait, I just told the world that I don't know it all by heart. Um, but <laughs> Seriously, it's one of my great, great tools. You know enough languages, then you can look up words like this and go, what was the other use? It's very easy to make them quick. It could be that it was meta, for all I know. But in this particular case, the idea of unity with Christ, very clear, very clear. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time, for a chance to dig in a little bit in a new way and understanding what you are trying to tell us about how to live as believers now that we are justified by faith and have been declared justified, have been declared righteous. How do we live? How do we struggle with this sin that's with us at all, every moment? And the idea is to that you're telling us is to just turn and be always looking at you and your power and your grace can come alongside us in your spirit in Jesus name Amen